Today I'm going to pick back up on a theme that we started about three weeks ago, and I'm going to try to wrap it up today. We'll do a quick little review, but I'm talking about the importance of the church, the importance of the church. The church is being increasingly marginalized in our culture, but it's also being marginalized in the minds of of even some Christians, the idea that you can separate the church from your faith or you can separate the church from your Christianity. And I've been studying this theme, and let me just go ahead and kind of give away the store here and kind of tell you where I'm going. You cannot separate Christ from the church. You cannot separate Christ from the church. They're inseparable. And the Bible says that he gave himself for the church. He did. And so the church is not a meaningless institution. The church is not an outdated institution. The church is vital to the work of God in this world. And we know that the church is going to be caught up, the Bible says, to meet the Lord in the air. It uses the terminology, the terminology, the church. Everyone said the church. The church will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, we also understand, if you've been around my preaching and teaching for very long, you've heard me say that the church is not a building. It's not a building. These walls, and, and I'm thankful for it, but this building is not the church. You and I are the church. However, this building is not a meaningless thing either. Some people say that and they'll say the church isn't a building and they say it derisively. And their motivation for making that statement isn't the same as my motivation for making that statement. The reason I say that is because I want us to understand that we have an obligation, but not just an obligation, because when we hear the word obligation, we think, that is of as a negative term, don't we? Obligation is a term that kind of sometimes makes us recoil a little bit. But not only do we have an obligation as the church, we have an opportunity. Everyone said opportunity. We have an opportunity as the church of the living God to make a difference in a dark world. We have an opportunity to see lives changed. And we also have an opportunity for us to be changed. How many have been changed by the power of the gospel? How many could just say, thank you, Lord? We have an opportunity, and because we have been saved, because we have been set free, anybody been set free today? Because we've been delivered, because we've been healed, because we've been impacted by the power of God. We are called, we, we often call it the great commission. I like to call it the great go mission where Jesus said to go into all the world preaching the gospel. And we often think of that in terms of missionaries. I'm thankful for all of our missionaries that sell their homes and leave their families. What a difficult thing that is. We have a missionary coming next Sunday night, missionary to Africa, and we're excited to have them here with us. But what an awesome thing that is for them to be willing to go and leave their family. What a difficult thing that is. We should pray for them. But the commission from Jesus is not for missionaries alone. 
It's not for pastors alone. The Great Commission is for everybody, everybody. It's for me, it's for you. And so oftentimes, if we're not careful, when we place that burden solely on the shoulders of missionaries and evangelists and things of that nature, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus has commissioned us, point to yourself and say me, he's commissioned us to preach the gospel everywhere that we go. The only way that the gospel can, can literally travel around the circumference of the globe is for every single child of God to be preaching the gospel. That doesn't mean that you get up here and do what I'm doing. That means that you are sharing your faith with everyone that you possibly can at every opportunity that you can find. And you have to sometimes create opportunities. You have to create opportunities sometimes. You will never have an opportunity to share your faith if you're not looking for an opportunity to share your faith. If you're waiting for the stars to align and the sun to be shining perfectly and everything to just fall into place, listen to me. The devil will make sure that you never have the perfect moment to share your faith. He will place every obstacle in your path that he can possibly place in your path to ensure that you do not have a good moment to share your faith. Let me just let me just dispel the myth. Every moment is a good moment to share your faith. Every moment is the right moment for you to share your faith. I wish I'd get an amen this morning. Every opportunity is the right opportunity. Sometimes that means you have to seize the moment. Sometimes that means you have to create a moment. But God will bless your efforts. And by the way, you'd be surprised how many people are hungry for a change in their lives. Oftentimes people that you would never expect, you might look at them and it might seem like they don't want anything to do with God. It might seem like they are content with the faith that they have. Maybe they're in false doctrine. And it might seem like they're content, but oftentimes lurking beneath the surface. Because we all put on a facade, don't we? We're human beings. We become masters of the facade. We put on a fake smile. We, we put on fake bravado. And we, we make everything appear as if we have it all figured out when most people are hurting underneath. Most people are thirsty underneath. And they have issues and problems and they have, they have a heart that is seeking after something that we have the answer to. Did you know that Jesus is the answer? Do you believe that? Jesus is the answer. And he's not just an answer. He's not one of many answers, as many theologians and philosophers say. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. There is no other gospel. He is the way. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Oh, I wish I'd get a praise the Lord. And so we have that, and we should be thankful for that. If we lose our thankfulness, now listen, here's why the devil wants to steal your joy. Here's why he wants to steal your thankfulness. Because if you lose your thankfulness for what God has done for you, you will not share it with other people. If we become, if we become indifferent to what God has done, and that's one of the dangers 
of being in the church for a long, long time is you can become indifferent to what God has done. God forbid that happens here at Apostolic Tabernacle. I don't ever want to take the Holy Ghost for granted. I don't ever want to take the blood of Jesus for granted. I don't ever want to take Calvary for granted. And if we're honest, we do. We do. We take it for granted. We don't, I know we don't mean to. I know that our motivations are usually good, but that's why sometimes we have to have an evangelist come and do like he did Sunday night and say, listen, we've got to wake up out of our slumber because we're growing indifferent to the things of God. And if you're not careful, the Holy Ghost can start moving and, and you become unresponsive to the moving of the Spirit. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. When you can be in the presence of God, but unaffected by the presence of God. If you study the Old Testament, there, it was generational often. You look at the life of David. He started off in a shepherd field, tending sheep for his father. He was the least among his brethren. He was the overlooked little brother. He was the one that was doing the job that the other brothers did not want to do. He was the one who was faithful in the small things while everyone else was getting to go to war, while everybody else was getting the glory, while everybody else was getting the attention. David was sequestered in a sheep pasture, but yet in the midst of all of that, he was worshiping God. He was writing psalms unto the Lord, and he was singing unto God, and he was and he had a heart of worship. He had a heart after God. And God was watching him. Even when David felt overlooked by his brethren, he had God's attention. Listen, you don't need man's attention. You need God's attention. I, you know, I, I hope that you like me. I, I really do. I'm, I'm human like you are. I want people to like me. There I said it. I want people to like me. But in the end, it's far more important to me that God likes me than for you to like me. I want the favor of God. I want the affection of God. I want the attention of God. And David had all of those things. He had a heart of worship. And yet, as he lived his life, years, decades went by. He gained fame. He gained the favor of God. He had the blessings of God. And as time went on, he took all of those things for granted. And he fell into sin. He fell into a time of great darkness in his life. And we won't, you know the story. He, not only did he commit adultery, but he caused a murder to be set into motion. And he had an unrepentant heart over the whole thing. It wasn't till a man of God stepped in and said, listen, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But to David's credit, and here's the difference. Listen. We all fall into the trap, if we're not careful, of becoming unresponsive to the presence of God. David would play his harp. He would go, Saul, King Saul was being troubled by evil spirits. This is in your Bible. Saul, who had, was a man who had been a righteous man at one time, was troubled by evil spirits. And they would have to call young David, just a little shepherd boy. And they would call him in to play 
and sing praises to God. And when he would do that, the presence of God would come into that throne room and it would drive the evil spirits from the presence of King Saul. That's the kind of anointing that David had. And yet he lost sight of who he was. He became unresponsive to even the anointing that God had placed on his life. Every single one of us is susceptible to that same kind of failing if we're not careful. And every once in a while, we have to say, Lord, I need your presence. I need your touch. And the church, everyone said the church, the church is a vehicle that God uses for his spirit to flow through. I said the church is a vehicle that God has chosen. Not only has he chosen it, But God ordained the church. The church is not a man-made institution. Governments are man-made institutions. The church is not a government. The church is put in place and set in motion by God. And so God has chosen to use the church. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, when thousands came to repentance in one day, and it literally turned the world upside down, the world has never been the same Since the birth of the church, it's never been the same. Say what you will. Even the even the harshest of skeptics would have to admit that the world has never been the same since the birth of the New Testament church. God used the church. He used the apostles. He used the preaching of the word and he used the unity and the gathering together of hungry people And he set in motion the church. And today, even still, God has not changed. Nothing's changed. We're still in the New Testament era. And God is using his church as a vehicle to pour out his spirit even in these last days. How many are thankful that God is still pouring out his spirit? God is still saving people. God's still delivering people. God is still setting drug addicts free. God is still turning wife beaters into people who are sensitive and have a heart for God. God is still turning lives around, and he uses the church to do it. Now, let's talk for a moment. We're going to review here. I'm going to switch to the negative side of things. I want to give you five ways to be unsatisfied with this church. This church is not the church, but we're a part of the church. Does that make sense? I know I'm using semantics right now, but this church, our congregation is not by itself. We're a part of a larger church. We're a part of the body of Christ. And so we're connected into that. Now, five ways for you to be unsatisfied with this or any other church and to miss out on what God has for you because you because the church is the vehicle, it's the vessel that God uses. You need to be connected into the church. You need to be connected into the church. You need to be connected into the church. I'm going to say that a few more times. You need to be you need to be a part of what God is doing. And so that means you need to be involved. Now number 1, if you want to be unsatisfied and many people are by the way. Many people are unsatisfied with churches and I know not all churches are created equal, but here's one way that you absolutely will. I'm giving my stamp of approval. It's guaranteed you'll be unsatisfied if you don't participate. If you merely consume. We're living in what economists call a consumer generation. Our country has moved from an industrial society to a consumer society. Almost all of our economy hinges on the consumer side of economics. 
and there are many problems that come with a generation that thinks solely in terms of consumption. We think in terms of what I can acquire, what I can get, what I can buy, what I can trade, what I can have. I read one economist the other day, and he said, we're living in the gimme gimme generation. And I think that's true. We've got a bad case of the gimme gimme's. My kids have a little kid's book, and it's all about having a bad case of the gimme gimme's, want it, want it, want it. And we read that just about every night when they go to bed. And we do. We have almost a childish fascination with, I've got to get what's mine. I've got to get as much as I can. And we're obsessed with getting more stuff. People breathlessly anticipating the newest technology device. People breathlessly anticipating the the new style of clothing that's going to come out so they can get in there and be on the cutting edge of fashion. It's all about what you can buy. It's all about what you can get. Can I just pause and tell you, I, I want you to have nice things, but it is not godly to be obsessed with stuff. It's not godly to be obsessed with just what you can have for yourself. In fact, the Bible says it's better to give than to receive. And yet many of us, even though we can quote that verse in our sleep and we've read it hundreds of times, we come to church with a consumer mentality. What can I get out of the service? What can I get from God today? Preacher, Do you have a word for me today? Song leader, do you have a song for me today? Can somebody do something for me that's sitting on these pews? We've all experienced that because we have a consumer mentality. It is not the will of God, and it blocks the blessings of God. When you come into his presence with a selfish attitude. Now listen, I'm not trying to be harsh. I understand. We come to church. I have come to church many times where I was weak in my spirit. Anybody human here? Anybody ever been weak in your spirit? I have come to church where I have desperately needed a refreshing of the Holy Ghost. But can I tell you the quickest way to get a blessing from God is to come in with an unselfish attitude. Pray for your brother. Pray. I've often said this, and I believe it's true. When you begin to pray for other people to be blessed, even in a church service, you can be in an altar. This is true. At one of the weakest moments in my ministry, and I am saying that on purpose, I mean when I was a preacher. I know preachers aren't supposed to ever have problems, but preachers have problems too. And I, would, I remember it was flooding to me the other day. Whenever we have an evangelist, my four years of almost five years of evangelizing come flooding back to my mind. And uh, all those memories come flooding back. And evangelists, I pray for evangelists because evangelists are a great blessing to the church. They're part of the fivefold ministry. They are absolutely crucial to the kingdom of God. And we need evangelists. But evangelism is a difficult lifestyle. It's a difficult lifestyle. You make a lot of sacrifices, and the wives and the children make the greatest of, of sacrifices in the evangelistic setting. And, and it can be hard, and that affects a husband. If a, if a wife is, you know, if it's difficult, you know, just, just the constant going from place to place and not having stability and not having a place that you necessarily think of as your home base that you can be at, not having family around, it can be very difficult. And I remember there was a season 
as an evangelist for me, when I was, if I could just be honest, I was weary in well-doing. Anybody ever been weary in well-doing? I was weary in well-doing. I was tired. I was exhausted physically, emotionally, and I was spiritually exhausted. I had been pouring myself out so much, and my wife had been pouring herself out so much that I felt like I had nothing left for myself. Any caregivers here? Anybody ever been a caregiver? Caregivers feel that way many times. You feel like you're giving so much that you've depleted yourself and you're empty. And that's how I felt. And I remember I went into the service. I was supposed to be the preacher that was there to to refill all of them. I was supposed to be giving of myself and pouring out of myself. And I felt like I had nothing left to give at all. And I preached. I preached my, my little sermon and uh, I, was, I was so tired. And if I could just be honest with you, I was just, I was really just kind of hoping that I could slip back to my hotel and go to bed. And I was even contemplating telling the preacher, you know, I'd, I'd really rather not get together. I'd really rather not visit at all. I'd just like to go back and rest. That's how tired I was. And that you're really not supposed to do that. And I remember there was a, There was a lady in a wheelchair, and she was the last person. She couldn't find anybody who was willing to help her get up to the altar, and she had one of those wheelchairs. It was hard to move, and there's people everywhere. And I watched her, and she finally started to kind of maneuver that wheelchair by herself, and she was having to go around. It was very crowded. She was having to maneuver down to the front. She was even having to kind of ask people, excuse me, and they didn't hear So she'd kind of tap people and say, excuse me, please, until finally she made it all the way to the front of the altar until she was right in front of me. And I remember in that moment, I felt the spirit of the Lord speak to me and say, you need to pray for this woman right now. I said, Lord, I'm so tired. I don't feel like I even have faith, God. I'm sorry, Lord. I don't even feel like I have faith. I don't even feel like I do any good. To pray, She obviously needs a miracle. She's in a wheelchair. She obviously needs a touch. And Lord, I wish you'd just move on one of these other, one of these other preachers. Maybe they'd have the faith. Maybe they'd have the strength. And I immediately felt the conviction of God. You know, the conviction of God's not a comfortable thing. It's not a comfortable thing. But it's a very necessary thing. It's a very important thing. And so I finally, I finally did. I, I, obeyed the prompting that I felt in my spirit. And as I walked over, immediately, as I laid my hands on her, I, I was refilled with the Holy Ghost in a powerful way. I was touched. I was, I literally felt my, my anointing barometer go from empty to overflowing. And as I felt my spirit overflowing, I watched her. She stood up out of that wheelchair and began speaking in other tongues for the very first time in her life. There is a blessing that comes when you get yourself out of the way and you think, how can I be a blessing to somebody else? You will be blessed when you give. You will be blessed when you participate. You will be blessed when you get off of the judge's seat and you get in to the participation seat. You will always be blessed. But whenever you have a mindset of judgmentalism, whenever you have a mindset of I'm just going to sit back and wait for somebody else to do it, 
or I'm going to wait until somebody else blesses me. And then when I'm blessed, I'll bless somebody else. You will always miss out on the blessings. But when you get a mindset that says, what can I do, pastor? How can I get involved? Can I, can I teach Sunday school? What can I do? Maybe I'm not a singer. Maybe what can I do? Anything I can do. Listen, I was picking up trash in church long before I was preaching in church because it takes a mindset that says anything that I can do, anything that I can do. Can I write a note? Can I do anything? What can I do? I want to be a blessing. I want to be a part. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I'm going to tell you, when you make up your mind, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to be a part of this thing called the church. I'm going to be right in the big middle of what God is doing. You just wait. You're going to start being blessed like you have never been blessed in your life. And I know that we're not living in in a generation that thinks that way. We're not thinking, we're not living in a generation that thinks about how can I be a blessing to someone else. But the church is called to be a blessing to others. We're called to be a blessing to one another. We're called to be a blessing to our communities, to our families. And, uh, And I promise you, when you participate and when you give, And I don't just mean financially, although it includes finances, but when you give of yourself, your time, your talent, when you give of your emotion, when you give of your resources, whatever they may be, when you give of yourself to others, to the church, to the things of God, to your family, to your community, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be satisfied, you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be anointed. Number two, if you want to be unsatisfied with the church, constantly criticize the leadership. That's a perfect recipe for dissatisfaction. Number three, don't spend time with your church outside of the church building. We need to fellowship with one another. Everyone said fellowship. You need to be an encouragement to one another. You need to be an encouragement to one another. Number four, believe that everything should be about you and for you all the time. We've covered that. Number five, be unhappy with the fact that it isn't perfect. We've talked about this in the past, but the church is not a perfect place. It's in this world, and it's made up of humans. Did you know you're human? Did you know you're human? And to human is to err, as the poet said. And so we humans are imperfect people. Christianity is not a stamp from God that says you are now a perfect person. And there's often a misconception that Christians consider themselves to be perfect. Whenever I'm talking to someone who's anti-God, anti-church, anti-Christianity, they'll often speak about Christians with a derisiveness. Well, they're not perfect. They think they're perfect, but they're not perfect. Listen, I don't know many Christians who think they're perfect. We are not perfect people. We're not perfect people, but we do have a perfect God (laughs) and we do have a perfect savior and we are striving to be as much like him as we can possibly be. So we're doing our very best. So now what we should be doing and what people should be able to say about us is that we are trying our best to be like Jesus. We are trying our best to be like Jesus. Sometimes we try and we fall short. Sometimes we try and we fail. But the key is that we are always, someone said always, we are always trying to be like Jesus. And here's the secret. When you begin to seek after God, he will always pick up where you fail. He will pick up the slack. He will. He'll step in. In your weakness, he is strong. And so he can take your weakness and turn it into something powerful. Now, I'm running out of time, 
But uh, I do want to talk for a moment about the first church. Everyone said the first church. Now, if you see on our sign, our church is called Apostolic Tabernacle. Apostolic. I want to focus on that word apostolic for a moment because there is a distinction between the word apostolic and the word Pentecostal. We often refer to ourselves as Pentecostals, but we are apostolic Pentecostals. That's how I consider myself. I consider myself to be an apostolic Pentecostal. And I say it in that order on purpose. I say apostolic first and I say Pentecostal second on purpose. Because there are a lot of Pentecostals. Not all Pentecostals are apostolic. Not all Pentecostals follow the apostles' doctrine. And that's what we mean when we say that we're apostolic. We mean that we are following in the teaching of the apostles, the ones who walked and talked with Jesus. And who better to know what Jesus would want us to do then his closest disciples who walked with him and talked with him, and especially the apostle Peter, who was given the keys of the kingdom. How many of you remember that? He looked at Jesus and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Ha! Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was not saying, as the Catholics would have us believe, that he was literally building it on the man Peter, He wasn't building it on the man, Peter. He was building his church on the revelation that Peter had just received, that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the son of the living God. He said, ah, you've got the revelation, Peter. You have it. And because you have the revelation, while nobody else here has that revelation, you've got it, Peter. You see what all the religious leaders refused to see? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, they couldn't see it, but you have the revelation. And because you have it, you are going to be the one that I build my church upon your revelation. And you're going to be the one to stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach the gospel, the gospel to the world. And so sure enough, Peter did on the day of Pentecost. He stood up and said, they said, men and brethren, what must we do? What do we need need to do to be saved? We've crucified our Messiah. We've crucified our Savior. We've crucified the Son of the living God. We put him on a tree. We watched him die. And now we have this profound news that he has risen from the dead. We have eyewitness accounts that he has risen from the dead. We have seen him with our own eyes. He's alive. And now we don't know what to do. We've made a mistake. Anybody ever made a mistake? Anybody ever made a tragic mistake? I mean a mistake that you cannot go back from. There are mistakes that you cannot undo. And they had made a mistake that they could not undo. And they realized in that moment we're sinners and we have crucified our own Savior. Can you imagine? And they said, what must we do? And Peter stood up because he had the keys, remember? And he was the one that... He was the one that was going to usher the church into the New Testament era. And he said this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. But he didn't stop there. He said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise God. And they did. Every one of them did that day. And then in Acts chapter 2, just a few verses down from verse 38. Here's what happened. The first church, the apostolic church. 
And they continued, everyone said continued, steadfastly, carefully. They continued carefully in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Everyone said fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. And so the first church gave us an example of what we should do as the church because we want to be as much like the first church. We want to be the classic. We want to be the original, amen? I don't want to be be a substitute. I don't want to be a forgery. I don't want to be some kind of transformed version of the church. I want to be like the first church that God instituted in this world. And so here's a few things that they did, and I'll close with this. They gathered regularly. How many see that? They continued steadfastly. They gathered, and they were steadfast. They were continual. They were faithfully devoted in the apostles' doctrine. So they emphasized apostolic doctrinal teaching. You cannot have a vibrant church. You may call it a church, but you cannot have a vibrant church that does not emphasize doctrinal teaching. How many believe that the doctrine is important? Number four, they emphasized fellowship. They emphasized coming together. They emphasized being together because they knew that if they did not gather together as the church, they would eventually be overcome by the world because you become who you fellowship with. My my mom used to say growing up, birds of a feather flock together. And so the people that you spend the majority of your time with are the people that you will become the most like. That's why I think godly people ought to get together as often as we possibly can so that we can influence one another. The apostle said to provoke one another to good works. We should gather together and provoke one another, encourage one another to be better and better, to do better, to be better, to be stronger. When we're weak, to be lifted up. Number five. They emphasized the community, the breaking of bread, the coming together, the being together. This means that they did more than just have church together, but they came together in to have a good time, to have sustenance, to the breaking of bread. In, in that day, that was, a, that was a gathering together of maybe what we might would think of in, in our age as a potluck. They got together and, and uh, they had food. They, they talked amongst themselves. They, they had a good time together. And it's important that we have community. It's important that the church has a community that we're a part of. And number six, and I think this is vitally important, they emphasized prayer. You cannot have church without prayer. You cannot have relationship with God without prayer. If you have doctrine without prayer, you have dead doctrine. You must have prayer in order for your doctrine to come alive. Your doctrine will be completely lifeless unless it's covered and infused with prayer. And so we want to be a praying church. Not only do we want to be a part of the church, but we want to be a part of a praying church that emphasizes apostolic teaching and doctrine and fellowship and community. Can we stand together and can we just lift our hands in prayer right now? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray that a tsunami of the Holy Ghost would just be poured out in this place today. Can we do that? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you touch everyone under the sound of my voice, God. I know that we're transitioning right now into our revival service. I pray that you touch every heart represented in this building. I pray that you would bless our evangelist, his wife, his children, God. I pray that you would touch me, Lord. I pray that you would touch the ministry of this church. I pray, God, that we would be an apostolic church.
I pray that we would be a prayerful church, Lord. And I'm asking you today to help us to be faithful in our fellowship to one another. I pray that you would help us to be more involved than we've ever been. And I pray that you'd pour out blessings on every individual in this room. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Everyone said in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God bless you.